Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 33, A Tale of Two Cities. The opening chapter of A Tale of Two Cities charts the far-reaching powers of Britain and France in 1775, their global empires and thriving cultures, and contrasts it with the desperate poverty of their citizens and the trouble brewing on the horizon. I'm of course speaking of the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Charles Dickens neatly phrases the time period as it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Think about this in 216 BC in relation to Rome. Rome has managed to go half a year without suffering a devastating defeat at the hands of Hannibal. She's about to raise the strongest force she has ever seen. Her allies throughout the Italian peninsula were staying strong. Finally, a strong character, independent of the Senate, Varro, was in the consulship. It was the best of times. But yet Hannibal had been hoping for such a character to come to power. Hannibal had been infuriated by the policies that had previously been used, and was gleeful at the change in the war's direction. Hannibal was about to inflict arguably the worst disaster in Rome's entire history. It was the worst of times. Okay, in both cases that may be a slight stretch, but I needed an episode title, and what can I say? I like Dickens. In the winter of 217, 216, the Romans raised their largest legionary force to date. As I've said previously, the standard size of a consular army was two legions. So, with two consuls, the Romans usually had four legions in the field at any one time. At a rough estimate, a legion was, at least on paper, 5,000 men strong. This gives the Romans a fighting force of 20,000 men. In addition to this, the Allies had to raise an equal number of infantry and double the number of cavalry, meaning the Romans had around 40,000 troops. The number of troops raised increased, but we're not exactly sure by how much. Various amounts are offered. 10,000 troops raised as reinforcements is offered by some, four new legions by others. This gives the Roman consuls of 216 eight legions. At its strongest, the Roman force is estimated at 87,000 men in service. Fabius's successful policy had given the Romans back their hope. They believed they really stood a chance against Hannibal. So they raised this force, which would hopefully finally crush this Carthaginian upstart. Meanwhile, good news came to Rome from her port, Ostia. Hiero, Rome's old ally and king of Syracuse, sent Rome a goodie bag, and a very nice one at that. 220 pounds of gold, 
200,000 measures of barley, 300,000 measures of wheat, with offers of more, which he would send to any port. In addition to this, he sent some reinforcements, a group of 1,000 bowmen and slingers to counter the Balieres and Moors of the Carthaginian army. He also advised that Rome invade Africa with her force based in Sicily, but we'll deal with that later. Basically, Rome was very, very grateful to Hiero, and sent out the resources to the consuls, who were waiting for the last of their allies to assemble at Rome. Interestingly, this year the soldiers were forced to swear an oath that they would assemble at the consul's orders, and not discharge until the consuls told them. Previously, they could make voluntary oaths to their commanders, or to their unit, but this is the first time that mandatory oaths were imposed. While the consuls were hanging about at Rome, they both had very different styles. Varro made many speeches about the nobles who had been delaying an end to the war, and how he would be victorious. Paulus made only one speech. In it, he asked how a consul could know what battle plans to make when he was still at Rome. He wouldn't make any declarations about strategy, or tactics, until the time was right. He would base his plans on circumstance. Paulus's speech was not popular with the people. Fabius reportedly spoke to Paulus before he left on campaign. We have the quote in Livy, book 22, chapter 39. If, Lucius Aemilius, you were like your colleague, or if, which I should much prefer, you had a colleague like yourself, anything I could now say would be superfluous. Two good consuls would serve the country well in virtue of their own sense of honour, without any words from me, and two bad consuls would not accept my advice, not even listen to me. But, as things are, I know your colleague's qualities, and I know your own, so it is to you alone I address myself, understanding, as I do, that all your courage and patriotism will be in vain, if our country must limp on one sound leg, and one lame one. With the two of you in equal command, bad counsels will be backed by the same legal authority as good ones. For you are wrong, Paulus, if you think to find less opposition from Varro than from Hannibal. Hannibal is your enemy, Varro your rival, but I hardly know which will prove the more hostile to your designs. With the former, you will be contending only on the field of battle, but with the latter, everywhere and always. Moreover, against Hannibal and his legions, your weapons will be your own cavalry, your own infantry, but these same men of yours will be a weapon in Varro's hands to use against yourself. Maybe it is unlucky to mention Gaius Flaminius, but I must take the risk. He was already consul, remember, commanding his troops in his allotted sphere when he began to lose his wits. But Varro was a madman before he ever stood for the consulship. His frenzy continued throughout the election campaign, and it continues still, 
before he has seen anything at all of the tasks that await him. A man who here, amongst civilians, can raise such a storm of popular feeling by his wild talk of massed ranks in battle array. What do you think he will do amongst soldiers in arms, and in circumstances where words are at once followed by deeds? If Pharaoh plunges, as he swears he will, straight into action, then, mark my words, there will in some place be another and yet more terrible Trasimene. Or I am no soldier, and know nothing of the nature of this war, nor of Hannibal. Indeed, this is no time to magnify myself at another man's expense, and I would rather go too far in despising fame than in seeking it. Nonetheless, this is the truth. The only way of fighting the war with Hannibal is my way. This is shown not only by the results, that teacher of fools, but by that same process of reasoning which held good before, and will continue to do so without change as long as the circumstances remain as they are. We are fighting in Italy, in our homeland. We have friends and allies everywhere to help us, now and in the time to come, with arms, men, horses and supplies. In our peril, they gave us that proof of their loyalty. Every day that passes makes us better, wiser, firmer. Hannibal, on the contrary, is on foreign and hostile soil, far from home and country, surrounded by every menace, every danger. For him, there is no peace on land or sea. No town to receive him, no protecting walls. Nothing he sees can he call his own. He has nothing to live on beyond the plunder of a day. He now has hardly a third of the army with which he crossed the Ebro. More of his men have died of hunger than fallen in battle, and the few that remain have not enough to eat. Can you then doubt that inactivity is the way to defeat an enemy who is daily growing more decrepit and has neither adequate supplies, nor reinforcements, nor money? How long has he remained before the walls of Geryonium, a wretched little fortress in Apulia, as if they were the walls of Carthage? But I will not boast in your presence. You need only consider how the last consuls, Attilius and Servilius, baffled and made a fool of him there. This, Paulus, is the only way to safety, and it is not the enemy who will make it difficult and dangerous for you to tread, but your fellow countrymen. Your own men will want precisely what the enemy wants, the wishes of Varro. The Roman consul will play straight into the hands of Hannibal, commander-in-chief of the Carthaginian armies. You will have two generals against you, but you will stand firm against both. If you can steel yourself to ignore the tongues of men who will defame you, if you remain unmoved by the empty glory your colleague seeks, and the false infamy he tries to bring upon yourself. Truth, they say, too often comes near to extinction, but is never quite put out. True glory will belong to the man who despises it. Never mind if they call your caution timidity, your wisdom sloth, your generalship weakness. It is better that a wise enemy should fear you than foolish friends 
should praise. Hannibal will despise a reckless antagonist, but he will fear a cautious one. Not that I wish you to do nothing. All I want is that your actions should be guided by reasoned policy, all risks avoided, that the conduct of the war should be controlled by you at all times, that you should neither lay aside your sword nor relax your vigilance, but seize the opportunity that offers, while never giving the enemy a chance to take you at a disadvantage. Go slowly, and all will be clear and sure. Haste is always improvident and blind. Paulus glumly replied that while the advice was sound, it was difficult to pull off. If Fabius had been unable to stick to his strategy with Manucius as master of horse, what on earth was he to do with Varro as his fellow consul? Paulus then set out from Rome, as did Varro. Varro had his hopes lifted early on in the year. He got the better of a minor engagement when checking some Carthaginian foraging parties. 1,700 Carthaginians were killed. Much like Minucius with his minor victory, this gave him confidence that he didn't really deserve. Varro was all for pursuit of the Carthaginians, but fearing a trap, Paulus stopped the pursuit. Rather than divide the troops as Fabius and Minucius had done, each getting half of the fighting force, the two consuls shared command of the same army, alternating who was in charge day by day. Hannibal, well aware of what was going on within the Roman command tent, decided to set a trap for Varro. He marched his troops away from the camp over the neighbouring hills, and deployed them so they would be ready for battle. He lit bright fires in the camp, within view of the Romans, and left all their treasure on display. Hopefully, the Romans would come and take the treasure, thinking that the Carthaginians had fled. Then, they would strike. The Romans were hoodwinked, as was Varro, but Paulus was suspicious and refused to march. He had barely any control over his men, and so sent a scouting party to investigate further. When it returned, and came to the conclusion it was definitely a trap, Varro and the soldiers were still unconvinced. However, the sacred chickens refused to eat. Do you remember the sacred chickens? They were brought around by the Roman legions, and they were offered food before battle. If they refused to eat, it was a very bad omen. We met them previously in episode 11, in the First Punic War, when they refused to eat for Publius Claudius Pulcher. Pulcher famously remarked, if they were not hungry, perhaps they were thirsty, and so he threw them overboard his ships. He then went on to destroy his fleet at Drapana. Varro remembered the story of Pulcher, and the chickens not eating really spooked him. He called off the assault. There was a sense, or at least we're told there was a sense, within the camp 
that while disaster had momentarily been avoided, it was just around the corner. We shall reach this disaster next week at Kanai. Now, if you haven't found us online, on social media and the like, you'll have missed some big news this week. I've been on national television. I was interviewed twice on BBC Breakfast Wednesday morning about whether Latin is still relevant and whether it should be taught in schools. If you are in the UK, you can watch one of these interviews on the BBC website. There is a link to it on the website. There is also a link to an interview I did with BBC Radio 5 Live. While I'm clearly very nervous, I'm reasonably pleased with how well I did. It's quite a good story, actually. But now is not the time. Maybe I'll tell it one time. Some other social media news? I've put a poll upon Facebook, and on the History Podcast's Facebook group, I've asked, After Canai, should Hannibal have marched on Rome? I'd like to know what the general consensus is, and I'd also like to know the reasons for why you think that, so please, please get in touch. You may just get a shout-out on episode 35, when we discuss this topic. In the next couple of weeks, there is going to be a pretty big announcement. So, if you want to be the first to find out, be sure to follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the history of podcast, like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and join the History Podcasts Facebook group. If there is any huge news, those are the places to be up to date. You can also visit the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com, and send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. And check out some Latin videos, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. I'll see you next week for Kanai. Thanks for listening. <laughs>